0: We are continuing in our study of Jesus, encounters with Jesus. I want to uh, remind you, of course, if you have... The bulletin, you have a sheet in the bulletin, an insert that is color coded. I've made a decision, I'm not going to color code the slides anymore uh, for our blended accounts. I think it's too distracting on the slides. So, Matthew, I've had three accounts blended together Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're just going to be white on the screen. I think it's easier to read, easier to understand. If you're interested in the breakdown of what parts of the text come from which gospel, you can find that in your bulletin. Uh, Today's encounter, which, of course, uh, one version of that was read just a minute ago, is focused on a problem much more prevalent in our context than in theirs. A problem that, of course, comes very basically down to the man had too much stuff. Of course, he went away sorrowful for he had many possessions. As we are going to break down this encounter and uh, the teaching that follows, we're, we're not just going to read the story that was read in a minute, but what Jesus says afterward. I want to note that, of course, this is probably a much more common problem today than it was then. As we break this down again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the story blended together, there's different emphasis in different accounts. One of the reasons I like doing this, we see that immediately. Behold, he was setting out on a journey. A ruler came up to him and knelt before him, saying, good teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, Jesus' fame and authority spread far and wide at this point. It's not surprising. People come and seek out knowledge. Uh, He's called a ruler. Some of the the gospels just say uh, a rich young man. Luke records this man as a ruler. Matthew emphasizes good deeds. Both Mark and Luke Good teacher, what must I do to have internal life? Matthew says, Teacher, what good deed must I do? So the emphasis on what is good is slightly different in these two Gospels. My hope is as we're thinking about, of course, this is the last sermon of the year. Next year, we're, we're going to continue in this series for a couple more weeks. I, I'm never good at, at getting the transitions right. But my hope is as we're thinking about transitions and new beginnings, this encounter is either a wake-up call, if you're in the mode of thinking of this young ruler, or an encouragement. The story of course ends with encouragement for the disciples. We keep reading uh, Jesus' first response here, Matthew 19 and Mark 10 and Luke 18. He said to him, why do you call me good? Why do you ask me about what is good? Again, Matthew uh, is the one who thinks about asking what is good. Mark and Luke record him asking, why do you call me good? But the the emphasis is the same, right? There's only one who is good, God alone. If you would enter life, Keep the commandments. Pretty simple. But this question, <clears throat> which again is not recorded in all of the Gospels, but very much flavors the discussion to follow. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus' response might be puzzling here, I think, just at the at the very outset. Of course, Jesus is good. We know that. And so what does he say? is he saying, you know, I'm not good? I think rather there's an emphasis on an inconsistency and a challenge in the man's thinking. Highlighted by the question, again, only Matthew records this, which ones? Which commandments? And really, I think what Jesus is driving at, do you think I'm good? Do you really think I'm good? And if so, are you ready to follow through? There's only one God alone. He's good. Keep his commandments. If you think I'm good, are you willing to do what I say? Or are you just sort of saying that word because you, you you're not really thinking it through? Are you not really thinking about things? Or are you ready to back it up with action? And again, the beginning of this encounter highlights a common failing in human thought, right? Human thought and action. Which ones do I have to follow? Now, we could read this a little bit graciously or ungraciously. I'm going to begin with an ungracious reading of this, interp- of this guy's statement. The problem basically stated is this. Many people don't want to be good. What do we want? We want to have the benefits that come from being good. In this case, the man asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Really, fundamentally, if we're just thinking about goodness philosophically, we could just end the question. What must I do? That'd be it. But what must I do to inherit eternal life? The emphasis not so much on being good, So much as, what are the benefits? How do I get the benefits from this? And the question, which ones, is making the point, basically, right? Which ones do I have to follow? Well, if you want to be good, we know God is good, why not just follow all of them? Keep all of the commandments. Now, if you want to be a little more gracious to the man, maybe there's a bit of a confusion between, of course, we've talked about this before in various classes and sermons, is he thinking well, what about the traditions of the elders versus the commandments of God? We talked about that in our Sunday morning Bible class a couple weeks ago. Maybe he's thinking, well, do I have to do all the things the Pharisees say? Do I have to do all these extra traditions? Or do I just have to follow God's commands? The text, I don't think, really is making that point. I don't think he's thinking along those lines. If we're going to interpret it graciously, we might say that. I think rather he is just in the mode of, what, do I, what exactly do I have to do? What's the minimum that I have to do to inherit eternal life? being good, rather than getting the benefit from being good, being good requires radical transformation, as we'll see in the story. A transformation that he, at least at this moment, is unwilling to make. It requires our thoughts, feelings, priorities, and actions to change. And there are many things, things we want, things we like, people, relationships, activities, possessions, that get in the way of this, things that we don't want to give up or change. And it can be hard to honestly evaluate ourselves. And this is the question, of course, for all of us today. Do you actually care about being good, or do you just want the benefits? That's the question, because they're not the same. The story focuses on one major stumbling block, which is wealth. That's the man's problem. But wealth, of course, is not the only thing that gets in the way. And of course, as we read the commandments, there's not just, these are not just about wealth, obviously. Jesus said, you know the commandments. I'm do. i kind of interested to know again the, the inflection of Jesus here. Man, you know. Why are you asking me? You know. Is he, is he sort of digging at him, or is it just sort of a general statement here? Jesus said, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Uh, as you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke... There is a blending of these. They don't all record all the same commandments. I'm grouping them all together, right? Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept for my youth. What do I still lack? And Jesus, looking at him, perhaps the two most interesting words in the entire encounter, which only Mark records. The reason I picked Mark for the reading. Mark's the only one that records these two words. Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said, One thing you still lack, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus loved him as he was about to devastate him. And one of the things I think is important to take from the story, despite Jesus' love for fallen sinful people, we looked at it last week, right? The story of Lazarus, raising Lazarus from the dead. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. The weeping coming out of his love for people, for the family, for Lazarus. Despite Jesus' love, he is unwilling to soften the difficulty of what's required to inherit eternal life. Jesus' love does not mean we get to get out of the commands. Jesus' love does not mean that it's going to be easier for us because he loves us. He looked at him. He loved him. And then he basically said the one thing he knew he wasn't going to be able to do. Because love does not remove the need for obedience. And in fact, I would say love is why Jesus says this to the man. He looked at him and he loved him. And really thinking about Jesus' response to this man here, you want eternal life. You want to to have this benefit. You want to have this blessing. I could tell you you're, you're doing great. And maybe some would have that temptation today to look at people and say, oh, you're doing great. You're doing fine. Jesus sees to the heart of what is in this man's life, that might lead him away from eternal life. The thing that's going to get in the way. And what is the extension of love if there's something in our lives that might prevent us from having eternal life? is for us to tell each other. Hey, this is the thing that you have as a problem. And as an extension of my love for you, I'm going to let you know this is the thing that might get in the way. This is what needs to change. We keep reading. When the young man heard this, he was disheartened by the saying and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions and was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. I want to first focus on this. Why were the disciples amazed? They're amazed at his words. Now, they later ask him, we'll read this in just a minute, a couple verses later, they ask him then, who can be saved? They're amazed, they're astonished, they're perplexed, they're confused. Now remember, Israel's history was centered on a very simple covenant. We talked about this again in Bible class. Obey God and you will be physically, I've got physically in in parentheses here, because the Israelite covenant was based on physical blessing. You obey God, you'll have good crops, you'll have prosperous situations, you'll have healthy children, right? The kingdom will expand and grow if you are obedient. And so the base of the Israelite covenant if you obey, there'll be physical blessing, and if you don't obey, then you'll lose your land, and you'll get disease, and you'll be conquered, and that'll be the end of it. And so when Jesus says it's difficult, to, difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven, they're probably thinking, the disciples are thinking, but those are the most righteous, righteous people. They're the most righteous, and we know that because they're the most physically blessed. And if this covenant is based on physical blessing for those who are righteous, classic confusion, I'm not saying they're right, but this is maybe what's going through their minds here. Well, if the wealthy can't enter the kingdom, what about the rest of us? Who then can be saved? Because the wealthy are the most righteous, as based on this covenant of Israel. Now, of course, we know that's not true. That's the whole point of the book of Job. We understand that. Uh, We should clarify that right now. The whole point of the book of Job, of course, is that wealth and righteousness are not inherently tied together. Although in Israel, again, we need to make the point they kind of were for a long period of time in Israel. The second thing then, why was the man disheartened? Again, maybe connected to the Israelite paradigm, right? If I, if I have to give it all away, what was the point of being good, right? If the promise is you'll be prosperous if you're righteous, but then I just have to turn around and give all the things that I got away. What was the point of being good then? Why why did I go through all this? But again, he's thinking about it backwards. It's not about being good. It's about getting the benefits of being good. I'm righteous not because I want to be righteous. I'm righteous because I want God to bless me. But again, cuts at the heart of the matter. Do we want to be like the Father? And remember what Jesus said. Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. Do we want to be like the Father? Or do we just want the benefits of what the Father can give us? Jesus said to them again. I hate how that's cut. That's not supposed to be cut on two lines at the top there. It's so, so horrible looking. Anyway, Jesus said again to them, truly I say to you only with difficulty. Now he said already how difficult it is for a man with wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Again, that we've already talked about why that is. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. With God all things are possible. The rich kind of get a bad rap in this particular encounter. And Jesus is emphasizing, we, we should make the point, he's emphasizing the difficulty for the rich to enter the kingdom. He says it twice. Actually, he says it, I think, three times how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And then, of course, the parable, it's easier for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So he really is emphasizing a lot here the difficulty of being rich. And there's a broader question, right? Why is it so hard for the rich? Matthew 13, 22. Think about the parable of the soils. One of the main problems with receiving the word. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is one who hears the word. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it becomes unfruitful. Paul says to Timothy much later on, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. I think that's the problem of the rich young man in the story. That's the problem with the disciples' thinking. Who then can be saved? They imagine that godliness is a means of gain, not for the same reasons as the people Paul's talking about. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. It should be noted. The desire to be rich is not reserved for those who are already wealthy. Anybody can fall into that, right? Anybody can be, want to be rich. Mark drops the qualifier off. If we read Mark's version in Mark 10, 24, Mark doesn't have the qualifier the other two do. How, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? Anybody can fall into the trap of 1st Timothy. But if we like, think about this inductively, we're trying to induce, why would Jesus say this three times? How difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom. We can come up with some reasons, I think. Number one, and I think this is the biggest one, being rich introduces more options to sin. At the very basic level, wealth is a function of options. That is to say, The more wealthy you are, the more options you have. Just very basically, in how we spend our money, what we buy, what we do, all the different options available to us in life. If you have very little or you don't have enough to survive, your options are basically what am I going to do to survive? That's it. That's what I'm going to do. If you have just enough, which seems to be in the case of the New Testament, the majority of people, they're getting by. Again, you don't have all these options for what you're going to do with your money. When you are wealthy, your options for life expand exponentially. And I have so many more choices, so many things I can do, so many things I can spend my money on. And kind of the, the downside of that is I have many more ways to sin. Many more options to do things that are unrighteous that people without money, just, they just can't do it. They just have no option to do that. And I think perhaps if you have it, fear of losing it might lead you to certain behaviors that the poor don't struggle with. Just, again, because they can't. They just functionally can't. The second thing we might think, though, which seems to be Paul's concern in Timothy, being rich introduces more temptations to arrogance and pride. Of course, pride being one of the primary roots of sin. And I think if we're thinking about wealth as a means of difficulty to entering the kingdom, this might be one of the things that those who are wealthy are introduced to a new temptation that I'm wealthy because I'm so great. Because I'm so awesome. Because of my choices. Because of my goodness. My righteousness. And now I'm not thinking about God. I'm not thinking about his righteousness. I'm not thinking about what he has done for me. What he is doing for me. What I need from him. Now I'm thinking about I'm so great. I'm so awesome. I'm so wonderful. And now I've fallen away. Again, options available to the rich. Temptations available to the rich. That other people just don't have. But we might ask the question, what exactly qualifies as wealthy? With great difficulty, will a rich man, what qualifies as rich? There's not a number or cutoff given in scripture, doesn't exist. 300% of the poverty line, 100,000 a year. Any number that Jesus puts there, or God puts there, is not going to compare across eras. We think about different economic systems, different ways of thinking about money, different different technological levels, right? We have all of these different things across cultural eras that it's really impossible to, to give a definition of what is rich. It seems, in the New Testament at least, that there's only three categories of people. There are those who don't have enough, they're the poor. Those who have enough, they're getting by, that seems to be most of the people. And those who have more than enough, that's the rich. Those are the only three categories. And really, if you're thinking about it, I think, in a, in a more logical way, those are kind of the only three categories that can be applied for 2,000 years across the human spectrum. You either don't have enough, you have enough, or you have more than enough. That's it. Those are the three categories. And the category, the question, of course, we might ask, which group do you belong to? And I'm gonna suggest that most of us are in the last one. Right, most of us, not all of us, but most of us have more than we need. As a function of unprecedented historically, historically unprecedented levels of wealth and technology in our context. Now, it's not true universally across the globe today, But our context, I'm going to suggest that if you just were plopped down with the level of possession and wealth that you have in first century Israel, you're going to be the wealthy guy. You're going to be the rich dude. The guy that is not worried about food, the guy that has so many options with his money, the guy that can do whatever he wants, generally speaking, not anything, there's of course astronomical levels of wealth we could think about in our context. But when the Bible talks to those who are wealthy and rich, those who have a lot, that's most of us. Which means, implies, what does that imply? It's going to be hard for us to enter the kingdom. With great difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. How difficult is it for those with wealth? To enter the kingdom of heaven. Because there's some difficulty associated with wealth that gets in the way of righteousness. Now, all of this discussion is not what the disciples would have been thinking about. It's, a, it's our context, how it would apply to us. In, our, in their context, the original context, they're not, I don't really think, they're not thinking about that. They're not in our particular cultural context where most people have more than they need. They're in a different context than us. And in their minds, again, they have this paradigm of Israelite covenant. Blessing equals righteousness. Prosperity equals righteousness. We are in a different situation now, a different kind of a covenant. For them, how do they take it? Jesus said to them again, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. but With God all things are possible. The young ruler is presented as the model citizen, which is why I think we might be inclined to be a little more gracious in our interpretation of his actions here. He's obeyed all the commandments from his youth. He said that. Maybe he's lying. But Jesus doesn't argue the point. He's wealthy. He's obviously done well for himself economically. And so maybe the disciples are thinking here, man, if that guy can't get in, what hope do the rest of us have? He's he's like the model guy. He's He's what we're all aspiring to be. But remember that Jesus began this encounter with this statement. No one is good. The implication, no one is good enough. That's the whole point of him becoming human, right? If it were just up to us, it would be impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But we could say it more broadly. If it were just up to us, it'd be impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven, not just the rich. The expectations placed on the ruler are also placed on everyone. What Jesus demands of him is what he demands of us. Strive to be good. Keep the commandments. Don't let anything get in the way of following Jesus. And we're either willing to do it or not, but we might say it this way, none of us are going to meet those expectations. The disciples didn't meet those expectations. The rich young man didn't meet those expectations. None of us are going to meet those expectations. That's why we need grace. With God, then, truly all things are possible. Not because of my goodness, not because of our ability, but because of his willingness. You can be wealthy and enter the kingdom if you don't fall into the traps that we've talked about already, if we're thinking about our possessions in a righteous way, what we're doing with them and and for others and for God. But the more important, the broader point is this. You can fail to be good and enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the whole point. Why do you call me good? No one is good. Not you, not the disciples, not anyone in this room. If it were up to us, It would be impossible. But by the grace of God, by the grace of Jesus, by his willingness, and of course if we're thinking about rich and wealth and sacrifice, Jesus does not demand anything of the man that he didn't already do. Who left the splendor of heaven, equality with God, all power, all majesty, who left all of that, gave it up, to come to earth, to live our horrible mundane lives, to sacrifice himself for us. And so the encounter ends, well this will be the end of our sermon, with an encouragement for those who will try to do the impossible, who will try to live up to Jesus' standards and strive for goodness, wealthy or not, rich or poor, if you're going to try to the best of your ability, to do what God wants, there is an encouragement for you at the end of this story. Peter said then in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, and there's some here for that specifically for the the apostles, but the general for us. Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, very evocative of revelation, and then more broadly to all of us. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands. The whole gamut of human experience. If you are willing to leave behind what gets in the way for my name's sake and for the gospel and for the kingdom of God, they will receive a hundredfold in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Oh, by the way, with persecutions. And in the age to come, will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The end here, the dig at the rich young ruler. He's first in this life. He has stuff, he's obeyed the commandments, he's a model citizen. But because he's unwilling to let that go, that's going to get in the way. But for those who are willing to let those things go, those who are willing to part with physical blessing. And he doesn't just say possessions here, right? It's not just possessions. Because it's not just possessions that get in the way. The other main thing which Jesus drives at here is relationships. Sure, possessions can be a stumbling block, but so can relationships. And if you're willing to leave possessions and houses, but also these relationships to put Jesus first. What's the promise? What's the blessing? You'll receive a hundredfold in this time, Don't mistake me for the prosperity gospel, because how are we receiving this a hundredfold? Through the blessing of the church. I have a hundred mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters in this room. And I don't own the possessions, but I know if I was in need, a hundred mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers would help me, would provide my need. The promise in this life, but ultimately, eternal life. But only if we're willing to let go of things that get in the way. And so we conclude. 909, we're going to sing this in a minute. There's a fountain free. Tis for you and me. Free? Why? Because no one is good. We can't earn it. He gives it to us of his goodness, his blessing, his grace. If we're willing to submit to his will. And if you're ready to do that today, come while we stand and sing.